Welcome, book fiends, to the Unlocked Tomb podcast, presented by Wicked Good Books, a reread podcast centered around the Locked Tomb series by Tam Samir. I'm your host, Nick, joined here with my co-host, Emily. Hi! We will be joined this season by two guests who are enjoying the material for the first time. Back for more Bones and Babes, my two close friends, Lisa and Junior. Hey! What up, what up, beautiful people? On today's episode, we're going to be covering chapters 14 through 16 of Gideon the Ninth. I'm going to just jump right into it, unless you guys want to preface these three chapters. We're moving towards the end of this act. Chapter 16 ends Act 2, and we're moving into Act 3 of the book. A lot happens in these chapters, and I want to dive right into it. Even though they are of shorter nature, I thought there's a lot to talk about. So, uh, Emily, unless you really want to, I will do the prospectus for the next one. You, you can. Okay. okay. Chapter 14, Prospectus. Harrow leads Gideon through the winding hallways of Caden House with an abundance of stealth. They finally find their way back down the locked hatch and into the laboratory. Harrow introduces Gideon to the first test in Laboratory 2. Inside the lab, they find two rooms, one labeled Imaging and one labeled Response. In the room labeled Imaging, Harrow places her hand onto a plate of glass atop a pedestal, triggering the Imaging room door to close and the Response room to open. Unfortunately, this means Harrow cannot see what occurs in the other room without removing her hand. Harrow sends Gideon to watch what happens in the response room and report back to her on what she has seen. Harrow sends a skeleton into the response room as soon as the door opens and to Gideon's astonishment, a giant skeletal construct with swords for hands manifests as soon as the door closes behind Harrow's skeleton. It lumbers over to the skeleton and destroys it easily before lumbering toward Gideon. After seeing sword-like arms, Gideon tells Harrow to send her into the room instead of the skeletons so she can fight it. Harrow refuses. However, after many more failed attempts, Gideon walks into the room against Harrow's directions. Immediately, she feels a little dizzy and unsteady and hears Harrow let out a small cry of pain over the loudspeaker. On cue, the large skeletal construct assembles and Gideon does her best to fight it off. Harrow tells Gideon to close one eye and order Gideon obeys, which causes something strange to happen to Gideon's vision. Before the construct can kill her, Harrow stops the test and the construct melts to liquid and drains out of the room. Gideon meets Harrow outside the response room where Harrow reveals that she was momentarily in Gideon's mind. Gideon immediately feels violated and defensive, but Harrow assures her that she cannot read her thoughts before promptly passing out. Honestly, I, I was saying before, this one was really hard to write. <laughs> and it gave, yeah, it gave me a lot of respect for Tamsin creating it in the first place. Because just trying to summarize it based off of her really well done writing was still hard. It's a complex chapter. And I feel like it's the first time for me anyway that the the setting became complex. Because so far I feel like it's been so vivid and beautifully described. I can picture it in my head. And this is the first time that I had to, even the first time I read it, double back and reread some sections because I was trying to picture it in my head and it wasn't matching with uh, the aesthetic from the above floors, which is intentional, but it was throwing me off so much because it's more modern and it's a, she's saying laboratory and there's tech everywhere. So you start to create this whole other you know, aesthetic for this room. And I feel like the first time I read it, I missed a lot of stuff. So going back the second time, I was definitely uh, a more vigilant picking up on some things. But it is one of those uh, uh, moments of this book that the the prose can get confusing for some. Yep. I will say for me, <clears throat> you know, I like to always, as you guys know, my my famous references. Um, I like if you've ever been to like Newark or LaGuardia, JFK even especially when they're doing construction with these new terminals and they try to funnel everybody through these like plexiglass sections through security. That's all I kept thinking about whenever they were talking about this <laughs> damn door. Like you, you can't escape. It's either you go in and you sit there and wait till you're the next person to go through or you have to wait. So that's kind of like how I envisioned it a little bit, even though it was obviously this system is a lot more complex than that, but that's kind of like, came to mind when I was thinking about this. Yeah, I found myself rereading a lot of the sections too because Tamsin does such a great job at describing areas and the atmosphere and stuff like that, as we all know. So like I was reading so much about the different rooms and the way that the halls looked. And as Nick said, it, it did feel um, much more modern. And so I was trying to picture what 
these rooms all looked like. And then when they start talking about, um, you know, when Harrow starts sending the skeletons in and you're, they're going back and forth and Gideon's trying to look and then Harrow's trying to do her thing. And it, it got very like confusing. And I was like also trying to pay attention because Gideon's also describing everything that she's seeing, like the mist on the walls and the windows and how close she's standing to everything that I'm like, I'm trying to pay attention to that detail and setting and also trying to pay attention to like which room they're talking about that I found myself going back and forth a lot. One thing that sticks out for me too, this this entire section of the book is this area being so different from the rest of Canaan House has this, it's, this room is arguably cleaner and more techy looking than the rest of the house, which is decaying and dying and full of skeletons. This area to me creeps me out more than the dying earth, dead sieve, rotting corpse of a building upstairs, which I think is a really interesting juxtaposition because the, the two, they're both creepy in their own right, but for some reason being down here in this like empty uh, laboratory and um, cubicle spaces, almost like an office, like a buried lab in an office, it's like unsettling. It's like walking, I don't know if anybody's ever worked in a large office with cubicles, but at night, but I know Junior has, and at nighttime, like after 1 a.m. when most of the staff has gone home, there's something super eerie about like everyone's computer screens being on, phones are all kind of like blinking, but all the lights are off, and it has like an eerie vibe to it, and that's what stuck out to me when I read it the, sec- uh, the first time. And uh, one thing I loved about it was that Harrow has been down here by herself this whole time, most of the time, trying to solve this we'll call it a puzzle or a trial, as she says, alone, completely alone, trying to figure this out because she's that stubborn um, and determined, a bit of both. Um, and like, I don't want to say she's fearless, even though I think that there's an element of fearlessness to Harrow, but I know I would be like getting that something crawl up my neck, sort of like watching over your, breathing over your shoulder vibe, being alone in this creepy, dark, abandoned office space, basically, slash lab. And uh, that was just something that stuck out to me. Emily, what did you think about uh, Gideon's uh, headspace walking into that area and being and trying to help? Like, this is Gideon and Harrow teamwork, right? The, the, they had their discussion last chapter. They said, let's do this shit. We have to do it. You know, we, we have to work as a team to get through this. This is them working together. And we got uh, Gideon immediately just jumping on it, you know, being the lookout seeing what's going on in this room. And you described it earlier about how it reminded you of a game, um, the way the rooms were, how the room's doors functioned. Yeah, I was saying it reminded me of Zelda, the Breath of the Wild, when you're solving like the little puzzles and when you're in yeah. a, um, the shrines and you do something yes. and it's like, it opens a door somewhere else <laughs> and the, the you know video game pans over to show you that. So I think this whole section, she kind of, set it up like that like when you close this door this door opens and then this thing starts to happen and um I thought it was actually pretty funny of course that the way that they finally get to or like get to that point of teamwork is Gideon just goes in against Tara's direction (laughs) so it's not really hey let's figure this out together Gideon's like fuck it, I'm going to go fight this thing. <laughs> she closes oh, yeah. herself in the room, and Harrow's just like, <gasps> but of <laughs> course, I think it does go to show that Harrow maybe needs Gideon a little more than she's willing to let on. So you do oh, see yeah. that bravery of Harrow. She's very independent, very, um, you know, she has a lot of autonomy. She does her own thing. But this scene kind of highlights that maybe she does need Gideon to figure things out because it took that for her to make a breakthrough, you know? In a way, she's kind of protecting Gideon too, uh, which I think is either subconscious or not necessarily in the way we would think of it as like protecting someone. But she knows what's in there is dangerous because of what it's doing to her skeletons. And we know that they don't have optical nerves that she can't see through them. So she only knows the end result of what's happening to them. So, But she knows it's not good. So she's not willing to risk Gideon going in there and getting hurt. So she's like, no, no, just let me keep doing it. Let me keep doing it. And she's got blood sweat through her nose, through her eyes. Like, and we're getting this. We're really seeing in this chapter, the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, like the cost. Um, yes, the the cost of using necromancy and and energy in this world, at least to 
to the degree Hera is. I'm not sure if every house has blood sweats in the same way, but she's literally bleeding sweat. And uh, that just was insane to me that she was reserving uh, getting in that way, but also like hurting herself too. I thought that was interesting as I, as we were reading it. Like we found Harrow, what was that a few a few chapters ago when she was in her little like cocoon, and obviously she had like the dried blood, and she like we found out that it was because of her, um, you know, calling the skeletons and stuff like that. And it was interesting to see it in like real time almost with this as they were going like get every time Gideon comes back it was one nostril then two nostrils then her she was like bleeding you know sweat and everything and I thought that was interesting to actually get to read in real time for sure I like just like the fact that they're actually starting to as as you know the chapters progress they're actually getting along and they're actually working together and I'm like okay I was actually scared for Gideon actually going into this damn room to you know um encountered this thing um and you know knowing that harrow was actually backing her up that was really cool what's a transference winnowing data center i was looking for the the name of the um the air they're in yeah you know on reread i picked up on that too because when they go in and it says winnowing i stopped and looked it up and that's kind of the um point of the room that we find out is winnowing means um separating the the important stuff from the noise. Yeah, what it, se- winnowing, separating the signal from the noise. And and at first that kind of went over my head because there's a lot of information in this chapter. But on reread, I thought it was a really nice touch. Yeah, little, absolutely. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Because this is the first time we're seeing uh, the need for this this pair partnership, of a, yeah. this partnership and uh seeing through Gideon's eyes hearing all that noise and being kind of cluttered in all the chaos it's it's cool because in other media this has similar either mind reading or uh telekinetic um or any kind of psychic connection with someone they never really go into interference it's pretty much just like even in D&D, if you want to send a message, it's just like, uh, Lisa, you know, pull me a drink. And then it goes in their head. She just hears my voice in their head. We never think about, like, anything else other than, like, oh, it's like a sound clip. And that's just one version of what that can be. And I think it's pretty cool that Tamsin came up with this idea that she can hear her, the, the noises of Gideon's brain. All the thoughts and the, the juices, all, just all of it. And I love that Gideon's like immediate response is like a super like I don't know if bashful is the right word, but she's just like not she feels like gross. Like she's been violated. Yeah, she does feel violated. And I think it's actually really clever too, because thanks to my wonderful husband, he's an electrical engineer. So he studied a lot of like electric magnetic waves and about and I'm sure being in sound and production and stuff. You get that a lot, and part of it is filtering. You know, you do have, there is a lot of noise, and you have to, you know, low pass filters, stuff like that to separate out the better, you know, signal. And so it's kind of like a niche thing to mention. And I, I think it's really cool how she related it to someone's brain, right? Because our brains are signals of electrons and waves of, you know, electrical signals. And, and so it was just really a cool on deeper dive, something that you really pick up on and appreciate. And all that to go through her eye. Like it, it was, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily to read her thoughts. She had to get through her mind, her nerves and her inner brain to get to her optical nerves. Like, and I, I was actually wondering, I'm like, I wonder what Emily thinks about this chapter with just this all of eye stuff going on. I like that. She, I feel like most authors or when you read stuff, they're just like, oh, I could read your, like, I could read your thoughts, but they never like go into detail of like how and what kind of thoughts. And I liked that Tamison like lists out the different parts of the brain. She's like, oh, yeah. like your, your frontal, your partial and the hippocampus. Like she talks about how each part of your brain affected and how she could feel like she'd be like, oh, I would start to like feel your movements of fighting but then it would be washed out by a different thought or a memory or or something like that which then gets me to the part that when Gideon is nervous that she can read her thoughts and she's like and 
Um, Harrow is just like, ah. she's like, trust me, I wouldn't want to. And she's like, oh, it's for your protection, not mine. I imagined Crux's butt once when I was 12. <laughs> Lisa always sharing the best quotes of each chapter. Yes, I, yeah, I was hoping that she was going to mention that, actually. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, do you guys have any favorite lines from this chapter other than that one? I, I was about to say, I think we heard Lisa's favorite. Yeah, that was my favorite. I also enjoyed the moment um, when Gideon first wants to fight it, and the way that it's written out is like, you want to fight it? Yep, because it looked like little swords, and she's like, yup. <laughs> like, you like, yeah. can say, like, yup. <laughs> and yep. it's in italics. Yep. <laughs> so, before we move on, that is one thing that I had been getting a little feedback on from some of our podcast listeners is highlighting how much Tamsin Muir plays with her, um, the style of her writing in the actual, like, text formatting, like, formatting of a book. So how we had mentioned before, like the miniature words, the way she minimizes the font for the teens, but also the way that she actually spells things, you know, yup for Gideon and italicizes it and how she uses the formatting of actual the written text to convey a lot of character work to the reader and, and emotion and, you know, their personalities come through in the way that she plays with that. It keeps me entertained almost when I'm reading, not that the, Content is not entertaining, but when you get little bits like that, it's like it gives it makes me read it a different way. And it almost feels like interactive in a way because you're not just reading in like a narrator's voice. You're actually then kind of changing into their voices. And I could literally hear Gideon. Yup. (laughs) yes exactly that is so true and also i I would say on the flip side too is when you're listening to the audiobook like i was definitely cracking up and i'm sure my neighbors to my left and right when i'm you know commuting to work is like what is this guy like laughing about you know and then to myself it's like if they only knew like this is such a great book and you know all those inflections that you um lisa and mr you know describing it's so true and it's Definitely highlighted when, you know, you know, the person who's actually um, doing the audiobook, um, it just makes it so much funnier to me, at least hearing how she uh, takes on those different characters yeah. voices during those very funny times. So especially Gideon, because I, I don't I could read it with comedy and the best I could either. I probably wouldn't have picked up on the sarcasm. But like even when I know people are listening to the audiobook, I tell them, like, don't go too fast if you go higher than like 1.5, I would argue that a lot of that comedic timing gets lost. And Gideon especially, like, I think Moira is like, yup, like the way she does it, which you could read in your mind too. But like, because she has a consistent voice for getting the whole book through, you just like, you know that you could close your eyes and not even look at the text and she could just be talking and you would know when she would switch to Gideon because she has that inflection. Um, so I, I love that. I wanted to read two lines that I love before we move on. Um, one of them is very plot related. So Harrow and Gideon have done this. They started, I wouldn't say they finished, but they, they, they are par- halfway through figuring out what this test is. And together, after some literal blood, sweat, and tears, Harrow says, it's a test. Harrow's lips were pink where she had bitten off the paint. She seemed to be having trouble swallowing and she was staring right through her cavalier. She was, she said unsteadily, you are the test. So I love it because we're seeing like Harrow's been down here for X amount of time trying to figure out herself. Now she has Gideon's health and there's a lot of time she has Gideon's help. And a lot of the times you can see Harrow like just talking, but she's not really talking to Gideon. She's like talking through her, like her own mental process, which I love. Um, like towards the end, she says some of the lines of, uh, she's like Harrow, uh, it's, it's actually going off what Lisa said earlier, um, seeing Crux's butt and then Harrow ignored her winnowing. She said, I'm a fool. It wants the wheat from among the chef the, or the signal from the noise, if you like. But why? Why can't I just do it myself? Like, I love that Harrow just talks to herself like a mad scientist half the time. It's something yeah, that, that's um, true. <laughs> but then, of course, Harrow, being exhausted, having exhausted her energy and her physical capabilities, passes out. And Gideon does her best to try and catch her, but ends up, like, knee-punting her until, like, the oh show. Oh, my God, that was so funny. <laughs> I love that. So I I enjoyed reading the part from Harrow 
because we know that she's obviously powerful. We know that she is, but I really enjoyed the part when she is like talking to herself and she's like, my mother and my father and my grandmother together could not do what I do. And she keeps like repeating that to herself. And then she kind of like pulls it together and she's like, all right, let's do this again. But like the fact that she's like chanting to herself that like her parents and her grandmother together could not do it. She can do it. Like that could be a cocky aspect from her. But to me, that just like amplified the fact that Harrow is that powerful. It's more of a litany, right? It's almost like a personal litany for her or a mantra yeah. where she's like repeating it to remind herself of something she knows that we don't know yet or that she's just that confident. But I do, I do pick up on that. I love that too. So before we get into chapter 15, this is one of my favorite chapters of the book, which everyone here already knows. So <laughs> Emily, do you want to read the prospectus for it? Yes, I will read it. So I didn't get into as many details as there are in the actual chapter, um, but here we go. Chapter 15, Prospectus. Recovering back in the darkened rooms of the night, Gideon asked Harrow to clarify the purpose of the test they just did in the laboratory. Harrow explains to Gideon that as a necromancer, she can see thanergetic signatures which would allow her to disassemble the necromantic theorems woven together that create the skeletal construct if she was able to look at it. The test specifically forces Harrow to view the construct through another, another living human's eyes to deconstruct it, which is an exceptional challenge. As they are talking, Gideon and Harrow receive an invitation to dinner with the fifth house in honor of their 11th wedding anniversary. Gideon convinces Harrow they should make an appearance at the party. They arrive garbed in dark necromantic robes to meet Lady Abigail Pint, the fifth house necromancer, a gifted summoner and spirit talker. Sir Magnus Quinn and Lady Abigail provide a seating chart wherein all the houses in attendance must sit and converse with one another. Gideon buries herself in the hot meal, and only after being thoroughly stuffed does she resurface to pay attention to the clips of conversation floating around the room. After flexing for Jean-Marie over dinner, Lady Dulcinea Septimus draws Gideon into another one-sided conversation, where she laments over how separated the nine houses are and appreciates having them all together again. Harrow suddenly stalks towards Gideon and draws her away from the party and back down into the lab. Gideon questions this sudden departure, wherein Harrow reveals that not only the sixth and eighth houses have heard of the Axis Hatch, but also the fifth, which means the others will soon be making their way down there to uncover the construct test just as Gideon and Harrow have. So we have the dinner party episode. This is like... Uh, American Horror Story Halloween episode where all the spirits get revealed and you know you, you learn about pretty much everyone's personality they're wearing in this moment. This is like the Met Gala event of the Lock Tomb where all the necromancers and calves are out. They're, no one's holding back. Everyone's eating. No one's really working. That they're they're being their truest selves here. Even though a lot of it is just small talk and banter. A lot of gossip. Really get. Yes, you get a lot of gossip of all the, all the drama basically between all the houses, and uh, if I, and I'll always say this, and I'll say it as many times as I need to, Moira Quirk is an absolute just warrior queen of, at audiobook narrating and performing. The fact that she's able to do this many voices in one chapter, I don't know if she recorded it all at once or at the same time, but it's at the skill of like a Matthew Mercer level of DMing in D&D. It's like that tier narrating because she has all these characters going back and forth. And on the first read, I'll admit, I didn't know the characters as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I'm, as I'm, I was as, Yeah. You know, on my first read, on my first read of this book, I wasn't as, um, my relationship with the characters wasn't as intimate. I wasn't as familiar with them. But now going back, especially, like I can close my eyes and I know exactly who's talking when she's doing them. Um, and that only gets stronger as the story progresses. But going back on the second time, I don't know M, if it was the same for you, but I love this chapter like twice as much. Because the, the first time, I, I still wasn't sure who I liked, who I didn't like, and, and who was going to be important. You never know who's going to be a filch, right? And who's going to be like Barty Crouch Jr. Like who's going to be the important characters of the story. And I just felt like this is a chapter where all the gossip is unleashed, but also like 
a lot of comedic moments with you know with almost everyone. But before we talk about the dinner party, I wanted to bring up something you mentioned, uh, or at least that we mentioned in the beginning of the prospectus, and that is when Gideon and Harrow are discussing necromantic theorems and thanogenic signatures and constructs. Now we've heard construct before, referencing skeletons and things created by necromancy, whether it be some sort of bone cocoon or a walking fighting skeleton or some sort of sentient um, creation um, brought to life by Thanergy. What did the three of you think, especially Lisa and Junior, uh, what did you guys think about these these hot phrases and these words that keep popping, these buzzwords almost? We'll call them necromancer buzzwords. Uh, did anything stick out to you? I know what did for me and I don't want to talk about it, but I really want to hear first-time readers' thoughts on these things. Um, I thought that I, when it was first described, I was trying to wrap my head around what it could potentially mean. And the closest thing, which we find out later, um, as we read, we kind of get an idea of what more, a better idea of what it is. But the best way that I was able, like tangible thing that I was able to relate it to is almost like a, um, uh, like in fit like the infrared goggles that show like heat spots and stuff and mm-hmm. show you like the hottest spot of the body um and that was like the most tangible thing i could relate it to so that's kind of what i was basing my theories off of with that but i didn't quite have an understanding of what it really means i don't think i still do um it does get talked about a little bit later but that was kind of where my my mind went with it Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I could totally see that. Yeah, for me, I'm still learning. And I like all these words, I know they're going to obviously play a, a more important and bigger role down the road as we delve further into the book. Um, so for me, I'm just still very observant of those words. And, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, um, Lisa, you know, there are, you know, some of those words that they actually use in the next chapter. Uh, but I think this is just only the beginning. And then I think as the book progresses, um, you and I will probably un- understand it obviously much more right now. I'm going to kind of reserve my thoughts as to what I, I think it is not for fear of being judged of, well, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but more, more or less is like, I really don't know what I'm talking about. And I just <laughs> want to, you know, just be more observant and just kind of, you know, see where this actually takes us. And then I'll be able to speak more knowledgeably of it. For sure. I I think that's fair. I think a lot of things in the story, especially early on, we were doing a lot of speculation with y'all, you know, oh, is this going to be a competition? And now we have all the houses together. But for the magic system, I think it's unique and obscure enough at this point that it's hard to speculate on it's more just like my curiosity is peaked Mm -hmm. right yeah you're just like yeah i i know this is going to be something and i'm really interested but it's hard to formulate a a theory or even a thought you know i just think like it's going to be like i know it's gonna be cool but it's just like um she's still kind of just giving us bits and pieces here so and i think that's just to really draw the reader in like okay we're we're we're, you know, getting closer and closer and approaching a point where, like, we're going to give you little carrots, but <laughs> just hang in there. You're going to understand what, what's actually going on. So, and I actually like that, the way that she's introducing, you know, these t- terminologies when, when it comes to necromancy and the energy and all that good. There's been a few buzzwords that have been spread out through this book, um, that I appreciate that she doesn't just like say it and then tell you immediately what it is. I like that she kind of draws it out and you have to like wait a few chapters until you actually figure out what it is and it kind of keeps you on your toes and like even more interested. You're like, I need to know what this means because I have no clue. Keeps it coming back. Exposition dumps. Yeah. So she's not big on exposition dumps and that's something that is huge in sci-fi and fantasy and genre fiction in general. I think it's overwhelming sometimes, at least for me. It does. To have all this stuff thrown at you at once. For me, I actually prefer, you know, um, this, I don't want to say long drawn out, but like it's, you know, obviously we're doing this podcast and we're taking it, you know, a few chapters at a time. So it's going to feel like that way, but like, like I said, I, I always look look forward to the, the next chapters and I don't cheat. Like I want to really yeah. go along and actually have a genuine reaction to the things sure. that you guys are asking of us. So 
So I like that the mood is there, right? We have yes. these, it, it, because we're not getting these big exposition dumps, we have the mystery of it all, which there is a mystery element to this book. And I feel like that just is tied to the mood and the general vibe of the read. Um, what I can say, at least for me, I'm going to be speaking from Nick when he first read this. I remember being like, these are like math words. These are math words. This is space math. This is dark magic necromancy. Tamsin Muir. Tamsin made necromancy math. And I've actually, through homeschool, my oldest, uh, and just later on in life, have learned to appreciate math way more. I don't know why, because it's been the bane of my existence, and to a degree still is. But as I've gotten older, I've appreciated it a lot more. And so this appealed to me in a weird way that I wasn't expecting. But I noticed that a lot of the world just made me think of just all, just quantum mechanic, math, engineering. Yeah. I could see geometry. that filter in Nick's face where it shows all the different equations going. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. The meme. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're hearing like necromantic theorems, constructs, thanogenic signatures. So one thing that my brain was doing in this moment when I first read it was space math uh, death space math I guess it would be like heavy metal death space math but also uh, that it sounds like math and that these space wizards these necromancers they have it figured out to a science they're not just you know when Gandalf busts out the staff and does a magic trick he's not like uh, he just does it he's not doing an incantation he just poop there it is like he's thinking fireball and fireball comes out of his hand and in this world it seems like that there's a structure to it there's a, there's a set of rules almost like a science and that was the thing that was kind of between space math and science which is two things I would not expect in a sci fantasy book that's about necromancy um, but that's what me first time reading the book was thinking so going into the dinner party, uh, does anybody have any favorite moments in this or quotes? Or are there any um, necromancers or cavaliers that you liked or didn't like? I have two favorite uh, quotes slash moments. Of course, both of them involve the teenagers. <laughs> um and the first one is, and I can't remember which one goes up to them, which is why I'm trying to find it. You think it would be easier to find because there it is. Okay. Um when Gideon is going to, like, I guess she's, like, reaching for a drink and she says that she feels a tugging on her arm. And she's like, Ninth, how big are your biceps? <laughs> that was one of my favorites, actually. <laughs> I yeah, that. I loved that. And then at the end of the, like, towards the end of this chapter, um, when Gideon is, uh, she's, I think she's sitting over with Dulcinea and she's just kind of looking around the room and she sees the the two teenagers over and it's like, I told you so, yours are fine. Isaac. <laughs> it's you not do a bicep so competition. Well. <laughs> it's not a bicep competition. It's the dumbest thing you've ever said. <laughs> I love them so much. So we meet Magnus and, and Abigail in this chapter. We've met Magnus before, but he's almost like a, a, a new creature when his wife's around. And not what I expected when I met Abigail because she's drastically different. She's like the, the mom of the group, but also is is not interested in the same kind of things from any of the necromancers we've met so far. Uh, and I like it because they're not, if everyone had the Hero and Iente energy and, and Palamides energy, it would just kind of feel more like a competition Um and I like that certain necromancers and certain calves are there for their own reasons, but also kind of like they're uh, not necessarily by obligation, but they're they're playing their part, right? So Magnus knows he's not going to be the best duelist. He's very much aware of it. So he's just there playing his role to assist his wife. And his wife is talking about this book she's working on, and she's talking about these records that she wants to get and how um, I think it's Palamides, their, their house won't let them share that information because of... Uh, it being, you know, exposed to the elements and getting ruined um, for the records of, you know, pre-Emperor's uh, reign or whatever. So I think that's cool because it also shows the houses aren't all working together, which we kind of, like, figured going into it. But now we're starting to see just how distant, not just, you know, space and time, but 
uh, how like the relationships are strained between each house and it doesn't seem like they're working together like you would assume the emperor's great empire would be doing one of my favorites uh at the at the dinner table was uh when i I forgot who it was who asked um you know um what is it that you know all the houses have in common uh, like as far as like uh, (laughs) yeah Magnus. magnus and uh I, I was gonna say that, but I wasn't sure if that was him. But um, the calves and like his corny ass jokes. Cause I feel like he had made another joke before, uh, several chapters back, and I kind of see this as being a reoccurring thing with him. So I always look forward to his jokes, and because they are so like dry, like I tend to like laugh more at like dry jokes just because they are dry jokes. So that was a um, that was a very funny moment for me that I actually liked. <laughs> Yeah, I liked his joke. They had the same middle name. Yeah. Corona Beth laughed so hard, she had to honk her beautiful nose into a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> I think doesn't Gideon appreciate it too? She's like, like I like that Gideon appreciates puns. Like she is, I don't want to call her simple, but she she genuinely thought that was funny. Like Gideon has this kind of recurring theme or this recurring thing throughout the story so far where she's always talking about people's jokes. You know, mm-hmm. she's yeah. like, oh, I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good joke. And she's always mentioning it or, you know, looking for the next really good pun or trying to say the next really good one. <laughs> I mean, and we hear all kinds of conversations happening right during this dinner. And we're only getting bits and pieces of it because it's not like Gideon's really focusing on, you know, gossip. Right. It's just so loud in this room. Um, you know, Abigail's a great cook. and well, Max is a great cook, which I love. I do just want to say. That even on reread, these little snippets of conversation, they still went over my head. It was a lot going yeah. on. But I yeah, mean, even the part. I think yeah. it's a good way, right? Yeah, it's, it's building not... intrigue. Right. It's building intrigue. Yes. Can... It's almost like real conversation in a room. You're not going to know every single importance, like the importance yes. of every single snippet of conversation. But. Even on reread, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to there's going to be so many Easter eggs in this chapter. And I was still kind of like, uh... well, I've, I've highlighted this shit out of so many. Of these yeah, Even the part where um, uh, I'm assuming it was Magnus, but I could be wrong when he uh, gave um, Gideon a fourth helping of the dessert. <laughs> Just and, and he was like, yep, I know she likes my um, my cooking and. Um, you know, I might, you know, my cooking is, rivals basically his his fighting is basically what I think he uh, said or thought. Oh, he does say yeah. that. You're right. <laughs> so, and I, and I love that too. And, and kind of bouncing off what Emily just said too. When you're in a car, when you're in a room full of conversations, I always hate when I'm watching a movie, right? And there's 10 people in the room. And every time it cuts to a different person, it's like the exact perfect moment and you understand exactly what they're talking about and you've got all this information. And it kind of feels like, you're being led purposely by the director and by the right. Like they're telling you what you need to hear. And I like that all this stuff is supposed to feel like not important and it may or may not be important later, but on reread, I, I will definitely say I highlighted a lot more. One thing that really stuck out to me, um, uh, it's a quote that I read. Uh, where did I put it? While you're looking for it, I do want to say it's kind of like Tamsin Muir is turning this flipping the script on us and saying, now can you, separate the signal from the noise (laughs) exactly can can you figure out what's important in this chapter and what is just actual noise and even on reread i'm kind of like oh no no it definitely gave me like that anxiety of being in a very crowded room with so many different conversations going on that like i it almost felt like i was sitting there and i was like turning my head 50 different ways trying to figure out which conversation i should be paying attention to yeah, it literally sounds like noise. And it kind of, like you said, you kind of get that sensation of just overwhelming too much going on, your sensory overload. And it's funny how Gideon responds to that, right? She just buries herself in her food. <laughs> it felt overwhelming to read too, because I had to go back and reread it a couple of times to make sure that I didn't miss something mm-hmm. very important. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely worth Putting a, I want to say doggy ear. If it's your, if it's your wreck, this book copy, doggy ear it or a marker, to come back to this and, and look at these conversations because a lot of this information, it's not. I'm not going to say whether or not it's game changing information, 
you know, but there, there's some tidbits throughout here that may or may not come up later. And it just is like, it's rewarding to have heard about it earlier. Even if it's just like building on the mythos of this world, which is what I get from the conversation between Abigail and Palamides when they're talking about sharing their records because she's writing her book. And she says, if I can't explain this clearly, then the fault is mine, not yours. It's not so complex. We have so little that survived the period post-resurrection, pre-sovereignty, and pre-cohort, except in the second-hand records. We have transcripted those from the sixth, though they're keeping the originals. And we find that they're keeping the originals you know, surrounded in helium to keep them preserved forever, and they won't even open them, which is like, seems weird. Like, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, this is not the second time this movie's come up in this podcast, but National Treasure, when they open up the Declaration of Independence, I get that that's not super accurate, and like 100% Nicolas Cage would have ripped the shit out of the Declaration when he pulled it out. But like, we can look at those records that we, we have the technology. We have the capabilities to look at all documents without ruining them. So it's interesting that they either because they don't want to share that info with the other house or they just don't, they're not allowed to take out of this time capsule. I thought that was, that stuck out to me on my first read and again on second read. Well, yeah. And it shows the personality difference, you know, the fifth house wants to dig into the records and go back in time and review the firsthand documents. And the sixth house is, meticulously preserving it like no the sixth house just says no we have we can't even let ourselves look at them and, and again this just shows you that you know these houses don't know their own history it seems like the, they are still piecing together just kind of like we are and yeah I, true you get the sense that maybe the second house might know a little more because they're they're directly related to the cohort uh, which is like the military arm uh, of the emperor. Um, but still, there's something, something feels off. It feels like, why don't you know this information? Like, what happened? It feels like there's a sliver of dead air or dead space that we're missing here. Like, why does this generation feel like they're missing a large chunk of their history book? I will also say that, I mean, I think that's sort of answered too in the chapter when they, when they are, are, are first, um, you know, going into the dining room, or what have you, um, how he, he says it, he feels like it's been a really long time since they, they've been together. It's been many, many, many years. So I would assume or at least infer from, you know, that particular part of the chapter that, you know, um, they're not because a they're on different planets or whatever it is that you, you want to call it. Um, and they haven't been together for so long. Um, it would naturally be assumed that they don't always know what's going on, you know, as far as their, their, you know, their, their history is concerned. And even with other planets, you know, let alone other planets, you know, like, I mean, clearly, you know, Gideon had no idea about all these other different places and, you know, what she was expecting when she, you know, first, you know, got, you know, got here. So. I, I think it goes to show too, how they all handle their previous records in history. Um, and this goes back to the previous chapter in chapter 14. There's a moment when they're walking down the hallway and Harrow tells Giddy not to touch anything, which she doesn't for a while. But then she even says, she's like, I've lost the will to contain myself, essentially. And she touches a piece of paper and it just completely dissolves. It just like combusts in her, at her touch. Um, so I think that goes to show like how they say, oh, well, we have trans we have transcripts. And, you know, even though they want to keep the originals and then they're like, well, light is a paper killer. Like everybody has their own belief system on how their records and how their history should be kept. But it just goes to show how old and how delicate the stuff is that, I mean, in a hallway, in a dark hallway, Gideon touched a piece of paper and it just like combusted. I want to double back on this. I do like in the beginning that Gideon is excited to go to this dinner party and is like begging Harrow to go. And Harrow's like, why Why do you want to do this? And Gideon just starved for human interaction and for good food and just to be like, I don't know if she wants to be part of the gossip, but she just likes being around people, even though she's not. I don't think she, I think Emily had mentioned this in an earlier episode that she has social anxiety that she didn't even realize she had, but she still wants to go out there. She's still like, it's almost like the excitement of trying something new. Um, and I just, that, that part has always stuck out to me. I just love that Gideon is so excited about going and that Harrow takes forever to get ready and like 
you know, puts on her makeup, I think, three times, her face makeup, puts on her best robe, which I imagine it like very much like a Despicable Me thing, where like you just open the closet and all the black robes are exactly the same, but she grabs like one that looks the best. Well, I think that it does go to show for Gideon's social anxiety, because even in earlier chapters when they had that dueling thing, like she hadn't spoken. She took her vow of silence. She was not speaking to anybody. She wasn't interacting with anybody. So now I think that she's had the conversation that she had with Harrow in the previous one, that they're going to be working more together. I feel like Gideon is feeling a slight sense of relief and freedom. And I think that she does want to go to this because I think that she's taking the right approach by, even if she wants to socialize with these people, she's getting intel from them in her own way. That's going to help them in the end. Whereas like Harrow is very like, I want to do it myself. I want to do it. I want to be able to be the one to do it. Whereas Gideon, I feel like is, while she likes to do things on her own, she also knows that she needs some sort of help from others. She's like, I don't have all of the answers. I was going to say, Nick, uh, just going back to what you were saying about how Harrow was taking her time getting ready, you know, Tamsin Muir does also mention that Gideon noticed her seeming almost afraid to want to go to this thing and i don't know if that was because of anxiety or if she knew something that gideon didn't know but then tempsamir also you know references how you know the reason or part of the reason at least why she was doing that because she really just wanted to go back down into uh the lower level of the of the place to you know you know do what necromancers do down there there's definitely a sense that these girls have been not around any normal people their entire lives, especially Gideon. At least Harrow has uh, Aglemne and Crux, whatever company that is, uh, the bone aunts, like her, her old lady aunts and the skeletons. Like she has her and, and her the denizens of the ninth house, like um, the subserv the people there serving it and that live in the ninth house that work there. She has more people than Gideon does, and so this is like the first. Not necessarily human interaction, but this is like the first outing that both of them have really been to, where the people aren't grim and dark or made of bones. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about one of my favorite characters of all time. Ianthe is in this chapter with her sister Corona Beth, and they're bickering back and forth, and we get more of that Babs cutting in, and we learn that uh, Ianthe was almost killed during, during when she was born with her sister. I think she was born like a second after her or something. A few minutes older. My sister is a few minutes older, and she was removed by surgical means. And what did she say? She says something along the lines of, somebody mentions that they're surprised that she didn't get absorbed because it would have made the other more, like, more powerful. And then Babs cuts in, as he's prone to do, and uh, <laughs> she like tells him to screw off, essentially. Then he just bounces back to his conversation. And then we cut over to Harrow, who's like in between two of like the most obscure people to, to be next to who's just she's not talking to anybody i think at one point she leaves and goes and talks to talk to teacher which is like the only person she's interested in talking to and then we get this moment right before the end before gideon leaves even though she doesn't want to leave she wants to stay and continue this outing uh, being around people and talking and just having fun if that's the word that can be described what they're doing here and she's talking to dulcinea and then sextus palamity sextus walks up and uh, I won't say introduces himself to Dulcinea, but he acknowledges her, and there's this sense of like familiarity between the two of them. I didn't know what you guys thought about that. It's just like a really weird. It came out of nowhere, where Gideon's describing that he, he, the way he was looking at her, Gideon felt hell of embarrassed being anywhere near that expression. It was very intense and focused curiosity but it was a look that peeled skin and looked through flesh. So it was, I don't know, I thought it was kind of weird. Like, why is he well, we know like, he's... really intensely looking at her? And then she's like, oh, well, yeah, Sextus is the medical, they have a weird fascination with medical science. So, you know, probably he's obsessed with Dulcinea because she's dying. Because she's dying. He's yeah. obsessed with yeah. a sick girl. I think, yeah. and we know that he's sickly looking himself, mostly because he's like, I won't say malnourished, but he's not, uh, you know, he's like, skin stuck to the bone just very very pale and gaunt and we get him just saying lightly i'm ever at your service lady septimus and they give a small trim bow like a waiter adjusted his spectacles and abruptly turned tail actually going with you said to emily too then she remembered that the sixth house 
had a weirdo fascination with medical science and probably found the chronic illness as appealing as a pair of tight shorts. And then she thought, well, hell. <laughs> she actually said, well, hell, a couple of times, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's her way of being like, damn. Yeah. I thought that was pretty so, funny. After Gideon quite literally eats her body weight and they, they leave the dinner uh, to get back to the room, we'll wrap up here on chapter 15. Uh, Lisa... Would you like to read the chapter 16 prospectus? Sure thing. Chapter 16 prospectus. Back down in the laboratory, an overstuffed Gideon and exhausted Harrow struggle to complete the test. While in combat with the construct, Gideon suddenly sees a strange change in her vision. She can see lights overlaying certain areas of the construct. She follows Harrow's directions to strike the construct at each brightly lighted spot in order. After dealing the final blow, the construct disintegrates to dust, leaving behind a small lead box with a dark scarlet red key inside. Harrow is thrilled by the success and uncharacteristically looks at Gideon with admiration. Being inside Gideon's mind has given her a new respect and understanding for Gideon's talent with a sword. Getting over this brief and awkward moment of mutual respect, Gideon and Harrow swagger out of the lab to head off to find the door that the key will unlock. As they near the ladder, Harrow and Gideon quite unexpectedly come across the mutilated corpses of two dead persons. Shocked and nauseated, Gideon watches as Harrow turns the corpse over to reveal the dead faces of Sir Magnus Quinn and Lady Abigail Pent. But for the love of the Emperor Griddle, she said gruffly, you are something else with that sword. The, the blood all drained away from Gideon's cheeks for some reason. The world spun off its axis. Bright spots sparked in her vision. She found herself saying intelligently, <laughs> I love this because earlier in this book, and I, I don't remember what chapter it is. I wish I could go back and find it. Gideon makes a comment about how one day you'll see me as a successful swordswoman for the cohort, and in in dreams of a day where Harrow is like, "You're quite something with that sword, or you're a good swordswoman, or something like that." And this parallel, yeah, it's her daydreams, yeah, yeah, her daydreams. And I like that those two things come back. And it's just an in, it's interesting how drastically different the same vision or same moment is and both in her, her daydream compared to what actually happened. Um, but can we talk about the mic drop here? That Lady Abigail and Magnus Quinn end up dead the very next chapter? Amy and I read this chapter together via audio on our way to see Belle last month. And... The chapter prior, we we did like we were in the middle of that chapter into this chapter, and she was like, "Oh, I mean, I love Magnus so much. He's just he's just different than everybody else. He's so cheery and happy, and and his wife seems so interesting. And she's like writing a book." And then we got to this part, and she's like, "God damn it!" I was I was shocked by that too. I mean, and, and I the, was yeah. The fact that it was like left for the very last sentence Ugh. of the chapter, I was just like. Huh. It almost overshadows the fact that they finally figure this thing out. You know, they're feeling good about each other working as a team. They're like, okay, we got this key. Let's go see what happens. And now all of a sudden there's two dead bodies. And my brain was just like, what? what's your favorite phrase, Nick? The 404 error? 404 error, yeah. Yeah, when I, <laughs> cannot when compute. I saw the dead bodies, I was like, what? What? Yeah. What? What? No, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just I hoping mean, that they get reanimated or something. I don't know, because I really like them. I really like them, too. And I mean, obviously, I don't know. And I assume I'll find out in Act 3 or later what actually happens. But it it is, I found it very interesting that they, like, were the two, I mean, they were found dead down the ladder behind a locked door that you had to get through the test to get the key through there. So was it whether, like, maybe they like this is just my prediction or like what I'm trying to like piece together is like, did they try to pick the lock and that's what happened because they tried to pick the lock, but they also made it a point at the end of chapter 15 to when Harrow like stomps away. And she's like, because Abigail Pent asked the faithless eight prig, if he knew about the access down to the lower floors, she's like, so we have to get through here because obviously they're going to be coming. So like, it's, it's just very suspicious that Harrow recently found out that Abigail um, was the one to now find out about the lower floor. So yeah, she, I don't think they locked the doors behind them, the, the, the latch. They might have. They did. they did. No, they definitely did. So, but didn't it reveal one key? 
Don't didn't wouldn't so, they have to complete the task as well? The hatch we haven't. I don't think we've quite figured out one hundred percent how they got the key to the hatch yet. Except I think she asked teacher. So I think everybody who asked teacher for the key to the hatch were able to get down to the lab. But the lab is where the test is that they just got the second key from. Yeah. But the key opens the door to the ladder where they fell. So there's two separate keys. Yeah. They They're, have the one key is to the ladder that you just have to ask teacher for. The second okay. key is the one that you get after you complete the, the uh, test. Okay, back. gotcha. I was a little confused about that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, okay, so see, the I new key, the red key they just got revealed, they're trying to figure out what door that opens. They Gideon, don't know yet. Which Gideon uh, thinks she, you know, she might know, but that's why they had that key ring because you get the idea that they're I don't want to say collecting keys, but that's a major part of the Cavaliers. Yeah. See, in in my mind, I, I just did not follow that very well then, is that I thought that they got the key, and the key that they got was to go unlock that door that Gideon found. Because it we the locked. We think that, yes. We think that, yes. But that's not where Magnus and Abigail are murdered. See, I thought that they went to that locked door that Gideon found back in the beginning and they opened the door to a ladder and that's where they fell. Okay, all right. So then I misinterpreted that. Yeah, so you got them on the way back from getting the key. We have a key griddle, she said exultantly, not for the door. And on their way out of the lab, um, they lit the way through the central room with bronchial passages and then down the short corridor to the axis hatch ladder. So that's... The one they went so down. they basically walked up on the bodies because the bodies fell down the ladder. Got yes. okay, and, okay, yes. okay. And they're okay. and they're in rough shape too. Like it, it's not just like they fell and broke their neck. Like they they're almost. I think it's just wet laundry at some point. Yes. What a description. And the way that they were embraced too. Yeah, I remember. Yes, the that, way yeah. that their limbs were all backwards and broken, yeah. and it looked like a really mm, not good embrace. So, but there was, but they also said that like it wasn't. They didn't fall in an embrace. It was the way that the bodies fell, fell and yeah. landed yes, yes, into yes, yes. looking like an embrace. Yeah. So, yeah. in going in, you know, before that, uh, Gideon fighting the construct and defeating it, was, I thought was pretty awesome because she's using those thanogenic signatures. She's following the that like you can. She's it's like a almost like um it's sort of like the how the wheel time TV show did the. The, the light magic, how it looks like a stream of light. That's kind of how I imagine it, but like darker. And she's like following that all these little pressure points for the construct. And she, you know, one by one picks this creature apart. And I love the teamwork between the two of them. I love that they, Harrow's able to get into her mind. And, and even though it's really difficult, they can work literally as one. I thought that was pretty cool, especially because this construct is no joke, right? Even though I think at one point Gideon mentions it's not hitting her as hard as she thought it would being as big as it is, which actually makes sense because it's made of bone and bone isn't particularly heavy, which is a cool detail because in fantasy, when you're fighting skeletons, you're like, I hit the skeleton with the ax. I'm pretty sure it would explode. Like that's, that wouldn't happen. But in the world of fantasy, the rule of cool usually applies. I like that in this they're still powerful. They can still do damage, but I like that she takes the, those realistic little riffs, you know, little details. Yeah, like I said, I feel for me in this chapter, the the death kind of overshadowed it for me. Like even going back through on the podcast and wanting to talk about, oh, this was a really important thing that happened, them working together and defeating the construct and seeing the Thanergetic signatures. But yet the only thing I want to talk about is that Magnus <laughs> and Abigail just got murdered. Well, because okay. he... It's like, it's once again, Tam Samir being like, all right, you know where you're going. You figure some stuff out. They're working together. Things are working out. You have an idea. You have the, the first step. And yeah, now we're on a quest, right? Yeah. yeah. And that car crashed on. She's like, and yeah. especially because this book ended with, I, I wouldn't want to call it lighthearted because there's some pretty bickering. There's, there's a lot of gossip and bickering going on in the dinner uh, chapter, but it's a, pretty relatively happy positive for the most part uh chapter and to bookend that with like a brutal death of those characters whom just celebrated their wedding anniversary it's just like a gut punch and you're i was immediately like a distraught because like what's happening like that's not nothing they destroyed the thing that was down here that was dangerous now we know there are other things here that are dangerous but you get the sense that the path that they've been traveling is relatively clear. So it just seemed right away to me odd 
that these people would be just brutally wiped out. And also, of all the people in this group of necromancers and cavalry, this cast, this dramatis personae, this cast of characters, you know, Abigail Pent and Magnus Quinn, who are basically the nicest characters that we've met throughout the story. You could say Dulcinea is pretty nice, but she has that Hollywood golden age, you know, fakeness to her. But these two characters are, it almost feels intentional. You almost feel like Tempson just like, just gut punch you or punch right in the heart, you know, pull on the heartstrings. But, uh, did I know Emily, you're saying you felt utter shock in this moment. How did Junior and Lisa, how'd you guys feel getting to the end of this chapter? I literally said out loud, no, like, like I knew them. <laughs> I'm just like, right? you gotta be kidding me. Like, really? Come on. Like, like, why would you, like, why would you do that? And I'm only laughing because that was literally my, my reaction in the car. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, like I was really like, especially after they put this nice dinner together and then you just off them. Mm-hmm. Come on. Like, I, 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 yeah, I, I was definitely distraught and a little sad. I'm just like, you gotta be kidding me. I had to go back to the previous chapter and confirm that it was those two on the invitation of celebrating their wedding anniversary. Because I'm like, there's no way, no way. There's no way that those two, like, I mean, Magnus is hard to forget. So I knew that I was right in my, when I read that, but I was like, no, I was like, there's no way they just celebrated their 11th wedding anniversary. They would have killed them now. They were spousal. And then uh, obviously confirmed and I was like, God yeah. damn it. So shocked. And I just was like, no, this can't be like, is this like another book that like the, you know, how they do alternate endings? <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> That's what I was saying earlier. Like, hopefully they get reanimated or something because I just don't think it's fair. It's not fair. I, I did. I feel like it was very so so far coming through the book we've had a lot of things that we've been reminiscent on you know with hunger games kind of like the classics that trope of you know competition bringing people together for this big competition but i feel like this one mira did a really interesting thing where she kind of surprised us with it where we had the nice dinner party everybody's drinking kind of like you would see in a setup for a murder mystery like a closed circle murder mystery right everybody's together you all the characters are laid out everybody's talking and then in the next scene someone ends up murdered so that's what you expect from like an agatha christie closed circle murder but you weren't expecting it here in this novel you know and now that looking back you're like wow she set us up <laughs> right us you feel up. you feel betrayed i felt betrayed i felt like how dare you make me finally i mean i liked other characters but you gave me nice people that i felt like okay if anybody's not a piece of shit or out to get anyone it's the girl writing a book and the guy who's like okay with not being the best fighter on a group of fighters yep and like for instance, like, I mean, I know Walking Dead, you know, I think they're probably like in their last final season or whatever. So I'm not going to spoil that. But, you know, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't actually watched it because I'm literally now just watching it. Sorry, don't, you know, come out <laughs> for me. But um, but like the part where like Rick's wife, you know, she has the kid and then, you know, she 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 dies. Like, I'm just like, OK, they just got to this place and they were getting it set up and like that happens. Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I like seeing him like on the ground like just crying yeah. and fucking losing it like like i literally i i'm not afraid to admit like i definitely cried i'm like oh my god like <laughs> this is crazy and so it's not to that extreme in this book but like i did have like like i was really like rooting for them to like i don't know do, do something amazing down the road and hopefully they do i don't know but we'll see well the scene act three i mean we had this act two ends with this like I love what the Emily said, murder mystery Agatha Christie dinner party that also kind of has like Beetlejuice dinner vibes because everyone's like super ostentatious and like it's gothic looking. That, that that was the vibe I got when I read it the first time. It was like this reminds me of the dinner and the in Beetlejuice. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that movie, but that's love Beetlejuice. Yeah, at least it's looking at me like of course I am. She has a. I'm pretty sure she has a um a hand a handbook on your wall. <laughs> Oh, you can't see it. No, it's too yeah. loud. So I, it, yeah, we got this. I have I have Lydia on my desk. I have I have the handbook too, actually. I love that. Yeah. So you get this Beetlejuice dinner party by way of Agatha Christie, who done it, or, or rather, we don't know it's who done it. We just think, oh, this is the setup. And then, like uh, Emily's saying, you feel like betrayed. You feel like you set us up. You just I should have known that was going to happen, but you hit it with this happy. Like I should have known better. Gideon and Harrow 
getting Harrow happy and succeeding and working together, like this is your version of hell freezing over is killing two very nice characters that we cared a lot about. Yep, it was a trade-off basically is what it seemed yeah. like. You yeah. you want Gideon and Harrow to work together, somebody's got to go and maybe it might yep. be two people apparently. <laughs> Emma's like dying over there. <laughs> you can't you can't have a cake and eat it too, people, readers. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and, and thus we get our uh, lesbian necromancers investigate a murder in a gothic palace in space. And it's not the full oh, quote. Oh, yeah, that, is on, the, that is on the cover. He does say haunted by Charles Oh, Strauss. it doesn't say that. It just, it just says I, explore a haunted gothic palace in space. I've seen other reviews that say investigate a murder oh, yeah. in our space. But that's the vibe. So... Enclosure here. Is there anything else you guys want to add about these chapters? To me, they're very exciting. They are. I mentioned this in the last episode that I like the dinner party so much because not necess- I'm not going to say it's where there's you know no more happiness is going to happen after this point, but that that's the the dropping point for all right things are, are not just setting in motion, but we're, we're going to go for a spin again. It's going to change again. The shuttles are being pushed off the cliff. It's, you know, a competition. They don't know what the classes are. There are no classes. You got to figure it out yourself. Is it a competition? Also, two people are like, have been brutally disfigured, potentially murdered. What is happening? Is the vibe I had when I first read it. That's, that's where we're at right now. (laughs) (laughs) A lot into act three. Yep. A lot going on. And I'm just not sure now what's going to happen next. And I'm excited to, find out what's happening but man oh man what a uh a crazy way to end the the uh chapter so my wife amy is reading with us and she was ahead of you guys and we're now officially caught up to where she is and she's so she's been waiting with this information for a while knowing that these two just died and i remember like she just told me she's like i'm shooketh (laughs) that's what she said when we left the car but uh, she was she was i saw on her face that the last paragraph like she's like who who no, that's like she's so bummed out. So you see that? Yeah, that that's me. So Amy and I are on the same a, link there. I love it. You did a really great Amy impression there. Was that good? Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, to wrap everything up of our sixth episode of the Unlock Tomb podcast, thank you to my guests and my co-hosts for hanging out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. We're making progress here. We got two. Uh, one interlude episode coming out um, before this episode will air but I wanted to thank the Wicked Good Books community as always for making cool content like this possible uh, without you guys' constant support over on the Patreon we wouldn't be able to sit here do shots and talk about Bones and Babes so appreciate you alright guys let's go wrap this one up we'll see you in the next one stay wicked